Hello, all you wonderfully strange and unusual creatures. I'm Corey. And I'm Courtney. And this is Sinister Crimes and Cocktails, a true crime show that digs into the dark depths of sinister minds, their menacing crimes, and mistakes left behind, all while sipping on a sinister cocktail masterminded by Corey for each episode. We want to first start out by saying that our sinister cocktails featured for each episode is just to help us lighten the mood a bit on the dark and horrific crimes we cover. And in no way, shape, or form, are we trying to make light of the horrific crimes. Please know our hearts go out to the victims, their families, and friends, and law enforcement affected by each of the cases we cover. Okay, Corey, what sinister cocktail have you masterminded for today's episode? I'm calling this one Killer Jeans. And half an ounce of Lupi Vodka, half an ounce of banana liqueur, one ounce of rum chata limon, three-quarter ounce of pineapple grenadine syrup, and a bar spoon of agafaba. 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 <laughs> edit that shit out. Combine all these ingredients into a shaker filled with ice and shake it until cold. Double strain it into a glass of your choice. Sprinkle it with some edible glitter and enjoy. It's really, really good. It I love good. creamy drinks. Yeah, this is, comes out really super creamy. And the aguafaba, you can't even taste it. So nope. it's really cool. You did a good job on this. Thank you, my friend. It's very springy. <laughs> it is, right? It's, it's, it's a good little Valentine's Day drink too, you know, like or, or a romantic night drink that you want to make for your for your lover. I would agree. So, all you wonderfully strange and unusual creatures, pour yourself a cocktail and settle in for this sinister true crime. Catching a sinister mind with genetic genealogy. Believe us, you're going to need it. On October 4th, 1978, two electric company workers found the remains of a young woman in Spokane, Washington. She had been beaten, sexually assaulted, and strangled with the police calling her injuries extreme trauma. The female was soon identified as 16-year-old Chris Ann Baxter, who had been reported as a runaway just a few days earlier. The case soon turned cold, but her clothing and other evidence was preserved, despite this being before the era of advanced DNA testing, in hopes that it would one day reveal the killer's identity. Almost 45 years later, in 2023, Chris Ann Baxter's killer was identified through DNA and genetic genealogy. So, was Chris Ann's killer responsible for other sinister crimes as well? It's interesting, right? This is a, a really interesting case because there was so much extreme trauma to her and how she was killed. And to her age, too, was interesting at a 16-year-old, you know. Also, too, can I just say, like, that area up there in Washington State and Oregon, they produce a lot of serial killers. <laughs> I don't, I don't <laughs> know what's going Maybe it's because on. it's dreary. I guess. I don't know. But, like, a lot of the serial killers come from that area. It's, it's kind of interesting. I'd, I'd love to just go, like, spend a year there just doing research on human behavior just to see, like, what the hell's going on that would cause that. I'm telling you because it's gloomy and doomy. <laughs> it's gloomy and doomy. <laughs> they need a little sunshine. <laughs> but I also feel like serial killers, I don't feel like they really care about the gloomy and the doomy court. I feel like somebody was this kind of aggression to do what they did to this girl. Damn. True. On the morning of October 4th, 1978, near the Whitworth University campus in Spokane County, Washington, about a half a mile north of Hawthorne Road between Division Street and Whitworth Drive, the body of 16-year-old Chrisanne Baxter was discovered by two power company employees. The two employees, who called the authorities immediately, found her nearly nude body under the shade of a group of ponderosa pine trees near some power lines. Chrisanne's body was severely battered with her brawl wrapped around her neck. Spokane County Sheriff's deputies and detectives responded to the location and began their investigation. Steve Baxter, Chrisanne's brother, who died in early 2023, identified his sister's body. Detectives would learn that just four days prior to her murder on September 30, 1978, Chris Ann had been reported as a runaway to the police by her mother. 
Chrisanne was a student at Joseph Jansen High School, the current location of Spokane Public Montessori. Wendy, one of Chrisanne's close friends, told the press that Chrisanne was like a magnet because of her kindness. She was an open person who just invited you in. Wendy also said that when she found out her beloved friend was murdered, it changed her life and many others forever, stating, It opened all of our eyes that there are monsters out there. Life wasn't the simple thing we thought it was. Yeah, that's pretty horrific when you have to go through something like that. Sure. And I want to point out something too here, like, because I really think you got a really interesting point with this victim. You know, her kindness, right? She was kind to everybody. And I think that's kind of a magnet when you talk about something, somebody of this kind of a predatory nature that did this to her. They target those types of people because they know that they can get close and, and get the ability and the vulnerability out of them to be able to, you know, do their horrific crimes. So this is very interesting that, you know, we hear this a lot with victims like this. Oh, she was so sweet. She was so kind. She wouldn't hurt soul. Yeah, that's that's kind of what they look for because they're easy targets. Well, that and the fact too, that she was obviously a runaway when this happened. You know well, sure. I mean? And what was going on during that time in her home life when we heard her mom had a, you know, typical teenage daughter mother relationship and, you know, things got probably heated during an argument or whatever. And she ran away. But I mean, somebody who's kind and sweet, you know, and, and definitely back in the 70s, people were a lot less guarded and a lot less suspicious of behavior by other people. So, you know, if she's a runaway and she's trying to get a ride, it wouldn't take anything just to drive up on them and, you know, stranger danger all the way. I would agree. Then Spokane County Coroner Lois R. Shanks said Chrisanne was killed about two days before she was found. She had extensive bruising along with trauma to her lungs and liver. Yeah, would, I mean, that's... What, what would it be like to, punching or what, stomping on to have that? You know, without, I'll be honest with you, without having more knowledge of exactly what the extent of the trauma was to it, was she stabbed? Was she beaten? Was she hit? Was she shot? I mean, just the trauma, that doesn't help a lot with what happened. But sure. I could be a, an array of things. Maybe he had her tied up while he beat her. Maybe that's where he kept hitting her to keep her down to do what he wanted to do to her. Who knows why that trauma was caused there, but very, very sinister on, on the part of, of the uh, the suspect here, because obviously he's got a lot of vent up anger. But yeah, he does. I mean, we're going to find crazy. out. We're going to find out if this was a stranger, if this is somebody she knew later in the podcast, but definitely a lot of pent up anger. I would agree. The coroner reported that it was clear she went under extreme trauma and was sexually assaulted. So now we know that this crime is sexually driven. Yes. Right. Which makes sense because a lot of these crimes that you'll see like this are sexually driven. And, and it's so weird. Like I've always wondered why that time and period, it, like, you know, that, that produced Dahmer, that produced Bundy, that produced John Wayne Gacy, that produced BTK, that certain set of time period, like what was going on that, you know, these guys just came out of like the woodworks almost and just started doing this stuff. Or did we finally get good enough at crime solving to recognize it? And, and as communication throughout the law enforcement agencies and, and, and world, did we finally get good enough to where we started communicating enough to start tying things together and going, holy shit, did these things always exist and we just got better at catching it? I mean, I think kind of that's where we got with it. I, w- I would think so. We were advancing more through the time of, of investigations, criminology, what was happening within our, our law enforcement agencies back then and the sharing of information. It was huge. I mean, you're talking about this is right around the time where you're starting to get that universal sharing of information in one central location where you can go and start looking up stuff. So that's what's really interesting. I think to me, I kind of answered my own question in a way, but I think that was definitely what led to why we started catching them all in the 70s and the 80s. I would agree with that. I really would. I think that's why too now, because we've gotten so good with our technology 
that you don't really see serial killers anymore because they get caught. That's why I think you see mass shootings, that kind of stuff, as opposed to serial killers. Sure. Serial killing now is a lot harder when you talk about going up against DNA. Now you've got genetic genealogy where they're using that to be able to go through old cases and solve them. So new cases, it wouldn't take hardly anything to, you know, get it going and solved. The days of cold cases are going to be numbered. And I think that's awesome for the victims out there of crimes. Like, yeah, it is. But at the same time, too, you also have to understand this is the 70s or right around the time that the FBI really started taking notice of these kind of behavioral driven crimes, sexual, you know, emotional um, hate, that kind of stuff. And they started putting their own unit together, which is eventually what came to the profilers of the FBI. And they started profiling these cases and started putting together. And it was great works between FBI agents, behavioral analysts, psychiatrists, doctors, behavioral specialists, all those who got together kind of with the FBI and said, look, some of these crimes are really sinister. And why are they doing this? You know, what, what's what's causing this? And how can we start to try to help deter it? And I think that work back in the 70s moving forward has really helped with why you don't see as many serial killers as you used to. I would agree. The evidence that law enforcement gathered from the crime scene and the autopsy all included possible DNA samples. It was then sent to Washington State Patrol Crime Laboratory for testing, even though DNA testing was rudimentary in 1978. However, an analysis couldn't be completed and the evidence was stored in hopes of being able to be tested in the future. But what great foresight on these investigators. Absolutely. You know, like, hey, I know about this stuff because DNA is in its infancy. Like they're barely starting to identify like what they can do with this. If it's, if it is so, you know, unique to each person, but what a great foresight on these investigators to go, you know what, this might be something we can use. So let's go ahead and preserve it and see what we have to do. Maybe we can use it in a future solving of the crime. Agree. Kudos to y'all. Kudos. According to Spokane Daily Chronicle, a few days after Chris Ann's body was found, a local attorney came forward telling police that during his commute, he had seen a couple standing next to a black four-wheel drive pickup parked in the area where Christian's body was found. The attorney remembered the vehicle because it was unusual for people to be in the area at that time of day. The attorney told police that he'd likely recognize the guy who he believed was with Christian. Hmm, interesting. But I could never find anything, I mean, later if he, th- you know what I mean? Yeah, if that ever panned out. Yeah. A month after her death, investigators only had more questions. Chris Ann's boyfriend was in jail at the time of her death. She had a lot of friends, but none of them seemed to know where she had been before her murder and gave investigators names that just led to more names. And that's, I mean, that's what I'm talking about. You're just, you're going, you're going down rabbit holes back then in that time period. At the time, a frustrated detective, Lieutenant Robert Sinnott, told the Spokesman Review, it seems like everyone you talk to gives you the names of 20 other people. Detective Drapo, who worked the case, believes that Christiane was hitchhiking, which according to him, was routine for her and was normal during the 1970s as people were more trusting back then. Yeah, we kind of covered that already, yep. you know. But that is true. People didn't lock the doors. They, you know, they would get rides with strangers. They never thought they could be getting in a car with a serial killer because serial killer wasn't even a word back then. I agree. But this time, Detective Drapo believes it was a rapist and killer who posed as a good Samaritan. He believes that at some point the killer took Chrisanne up near where her body was found, sexually assaulted her, choked her with her own clothes, killing her, and then left her there. Would you agree with that assessment? I probably, probably would. Well, from what we know, again, I don't know a lot about the crime scene, but if, I mean, it looks like they probably identified that it was all done in the same spot. She wasn't dragged there or left there. Also, too, I mean, not only was she sexually assaulted and choked with her clothes, but she was beaten pretty bad, too. So let's not forget that. Agree. A lot of aggression there. Yep. I feel like he doesn't like girls. Definitely somebody did him wrong somewhere. 
The police would spend the next three years running down every lead they could think of. Investigators at one point believed that a self-proclaimed serial killer, Henry Lee Lucas, was responsible for Chris Ann's murder after he claimed responsibility for it in 1984. The police even obtained a murder warrant for his arrest, but his confessions were later doubted, so nothing came of it. Now, I wonder why they were doubted. Everything that I looked at, it really didn't give much other than the fact that he was known to lie. Henry Lee Lucas? Yes. Well, he was a serial killer. He was, but there wasn't much I could find, but I don't even think he was in the area at the time that this occurred. Well, when he was originally caught, he was caught in Texas. So that's what was really interesting. He wasn't anywhere near Washington or Spokane. <laughs> that's a long way away. That's a really long way away. Now, another man, Stanley Bernson, would also claim to be Chris Ann's killer, but there was not any evidence to link him whatsoever to the crime. Eventually, the case turned cold and would stay that way for decades. In 2006, with improved technology, detectives had the evidence that had been collected in Chris Ann's murder retested. The testing revealed both Chris Ann's DNA and that of an unknown male suspect. The male profile was added into the national DNA database known as CODIS, right? Mm-hmm. CODIS, yep. Known as CODIS, but there was no match. The unknown male DNA was also compared against Henry Lee Lucas and Stanley Bernson, but the DNA did not match either man. Yeah. Then, eight years later, the male suspect's DNA profile was entered into another database called NDIS with the same disappointing result. Now, this case might have stayed unsolved if it were not for the explosive growth of a technique called genetic genealogy that allows experts to compare a DNA profile to millions of others stored by services like Ancestry.com or 23andMe and build a family tree for the suspect. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. So your family's going to get you caught. Yep. <laughs> In 2020, the Spokane County Sheriff's Office hired a private lab called Ortham Inc. located in Texas to conduct further DNA testing and perform genealogical research. Ortham genealogists were able to identify a direct descendant of the suspect, but that person had died. Detectives reached out and interviewed the family members of that person who provided DNA samples to the scientist. The DNA samples that were provided were evaluated with scientists finding that the samples were inconsistent with the unknown suspect's DNA profile, but were consistent with a sibling or half-sibling of the suspect. Interesting, huh? Yep. That's crazy. Like, that's a lot of, to go through to find that. I mean, that is a lot of and that's digging the thing. through the family. That That's the thing. You have to... Remember, when we talk about this kind of, of technique and, and way of solving these crimes, it takes time. It's not something that's going to happen overnight because there's a lot of research involved. And then you have to actually go and do interviews. And the genealogists that are doing this, they're not the ones interviewing these people. They have to have a detective or somebody else go out and do it because they're not trained in that kind of stuff. And of course, a lot of them are built at home. They just did their own genealogy and then they got interested in it. And then it was something they were able to start tracking and doing. And then these law enforcement people bring them on board. They have no training, law enforcement training. So you don't want them being the ones to talk to the family, you want to send out detectives. So it can take a long time to get these things done. Yeah, it can. As the investigation continued, Keith D. Landblum was revealed as a possible person of interest. 
Lynn Bloom had been arrested and charged in Spokane County for the 1975 violent beating and rape of a 16-year-old female near the area where Christiane Baxter's body was found. So see, this is interesting. Now you've got corresponding evidence that's coming in that's going to help you kind of really build that case against him, right? Well, in the same area, mm-hmm. same age. Same age, same MO, basically. Yep. Lynn Bloom had admitted to having the intercourse with the 16-year-old victim and pled guilty to assault in exchange for the rape charges being dropped. That's fucking terrible. That is terrible, but it makes me wonder how bad of a job those police officers did that they had to do that. I would agree with that. And collection of evidence. Yep. Lynn Bloom was not in custody at the time of Chrisanne's murder and sexual assault. He had been released from prison about two months prior on August 7th, 1978. Yeah, that definitely runs very well with his MO and time frame. I would agree. Major crimes detectives found Lynn Bloom's son in Louisiana through a DNA comparison obtained by the Jefferson Davis Parish Sheriff's Office. In 2023, the DNA collected in 1978 showed 320 times more likelihood of a match to be Lynn Bloom and his known child than if it was compared to an unrelated individual selected at random from the U.S. population. Okay, so this is what we're talking about, right? When I've talked about this before in our podcast about this, DNA, when you get the experts up there on the stand and you start talking about it, it's nothing that is certain. It's more of a likelihood, right? It's likelihood that it's this person over anybody else in the United States. That's how they're going to, or anywhere else in the world. Why do they talk like that? Because we don't have everybody's DNA in the world. So we don't know. Right. You can't be 100% certain because of that fact right there. You don't have everybody's DNA. So you can't get up on the stand and go, I'm 100% sure this is the person because you're really not because you don't have everybody's DNA. But it's 320 times more likely that it is him over anybody else in the, in the DNA that we do have. Good job explaining that. Yeah. <laughs> Detectives talked to the Spokane County Prosecuting Attorney's Office about the case and new evidence that they had gathered. They both agreed on charges in Lynn Bloom's arrest if he was living. However, Lynn Bloom would never be brought to justice. Keith D. Lynn Bloom died in a fire on April 11, 1981, with his death certificate listing the manner of death as an accident. His DNA was never found in any database due to his death. Yeah. So, but it's funny, right? We're talking what three years, like two years later, three years later, died, died in a fire. So, what, what? Well, it's karma, absolutely. But what always fascinates me, and what the big question is, is why serial killers stop? Right? They're feeding a need with inside them. And this guy here, he was obviously had a need. But why did he stop? Why did no more killings come together? Because he died. If he hadn't died or went to prison or anything like that, he probably would have had a lot more victims. I would agree. Can we also say that if he, for the first female victim that he spent time in jail for, mm-hmm. if he had actually been convicted of rape and not this sexual assault, Chris Ann Baxter probably wouldn't have died. She probably wouldn't have. She probably still be alive today. I mean, just saying. Because he was out. He got out on, a, on an assault charge instead of having to stay in on a sexual assault charge. Yep. This almost 45-year-old case is now closed with exceptional circumstances due to Lynn Bloom's death. Even though Lynn Bloom will not face criminal charges, the Spokane County Sheriff's Office stated that they hope this brings answers to Chrisanne's family and friends and a small amount of comfort knowing that the suspect has been identified. 
Okay, Corey, I know we kind of got off track a couple of these past episodes, but let's get back on and what are Lynn Bloom's mistakes? <laughs> we have kind of gotten off track. Well, of course, all the identifying, you know, evidence he left behind. Of course, the DNA. Now, But again, when you have these older cases like that, you're going to have that because they didn't think about DNA back then. They didn't think about fingerprints back then. They didn't think about blood evidence. They didn't think about any of that. They just were feeding their need. Now, right, that we've advanced so much in today's technology and the way they're doing it, I mean, you know, obviously they've got to be a lot careful or to be a, a successful serial killer. Next, obviously, like you've already pointed out in your prior statement, the police department did a bad job on his first victim. Well, I say the police department. The mistake, whoever's mistake it was to not being able to prosecute. Yeah. It could have been. Whoever's mistake it was to not prosecute to the fullest extent on the rape of his first victim really has the blood of this lady's hands on him because you know what? He got out because, you know, you didn't go full force. What the circumstances behind that are, I don't know. You know, I don't know if the first victim didn't want to testify against him or was too scared, which happens a lot. You know, when you talk about being so traumatized and brutalized by somebody like that, you get scared to even think that they could see your face again. You know what I mean? I get that. So I could see why they had to probably maybe, if the prosecutors had to knock this down a little bit to get him to be convicted of something and go to prison. But really, those are the only two big things I see. But again, like I said, his mistakes aren't really mistakes because he wasn't making a mistake. He was just feeding his need, never knowing that it would ever catch up to him and get him caught. Well, I hope y'all like this one. I mean, I did. It was It's an interesting case, and I love that it was it solved by genetic genealogy. It's just such cutting edge stuff. It is. Well, as always, stay, stay strange and unusual. We'll be back next week with another cocktail and a new tale of sinister minds, reminiscing crimes, and mistakes they left behind. Thanks for listening. Please don't forget to subscribe and download us on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite show. Want the recipe to try Corey's Sinister Cocktail from today's episode? Or have any constructive feedback or true crime stories you would like to hear us cover? Or even Sinister Cocktail recipes for us to try? Email us at SinisterCrimesAndCocktails at gmail.com. Visit our website, www.sinistercrimesandcocktailspodcast.com, Facebook page, Sinister Crimes and Cocktails, and our Instagram page, Sinister Crimes and Cocktails. Love what you heard and want to help support our show or donate to our Sinister Cocktail Fund? You can donate to our cash app at money sign Sinister Crimes, all one word, and we will give you a shout out on our next episode and which fund you donate to. Thank you. (laughs) 